Um, Alright, can I ask you a question? How long do you have to know someone before you can just come out and say, Hey, can I see your breasts? <laughs> I would like, if I may, to take you on a really fucking strange journey. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you. I'm being joined by Jesse of I Dream of Jesse. How are you, my dear? Fantastic. Sweet. We got some good news to be springing on the peeps today. Good news. Okay, well, first of all, it's April 5th, and uh, we do have a really good show for you. Really big, power-packed show, actually, and it's almost entirely... Well, I'll say this. Three-fourths of this entire show is audience-driven. We got nine cents letters directly asking about uh, raising children. Uh, we've got infernal informant, both articles sent to us by you listeners. We're going to speak to those, and then uh, we got a little I dream of Jesse, of course. Episode twenty-four. What are we calling this one? Confrontations. Confrontations. Well, about my inappropriate boob comments. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry, I'll sipping. confront you on that later. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Um, and then I'm, we're going to close this out with uh, a tacked-on creature feature. And let me tell you a little something here. I've been working uh, on a... I've been helping, I should say. I've been working on it. I've been helping uh, a den or den with something. And we're going to announce it today in this creature feature segment. Militant eroticism. If you've been following militant eroticism in social networks, you probably are going to have a clue about this. It has something to do with the book, something to do with Milton eroticism, and you're going to find out very soon at the tail end of the show. So, uh, And it's a contest, of course, so I'll, I'll recap when we close it out after you've heard that segment. Um, okay, before we start, you know, every year we have a handful of you know, kind of special episodes to break up what Nine Cents normally brings you, you know, our d- different segments and stuff. Valpurgis Noct is no exception. We have traditionally had an interview with, uh, you know, I'll say a bigwig in Satanism or in the Church of Satan specifically. And this is going to be a little bit different. So, Jesse, do you want to tell us about uh, this Valpurgis Noct special? Sure. I got together with three wonderful ladies, uh, Magistrate Peggy Dramia, Witch Safdig, and mm. Aaron of Down at the Crossroads. And we talked the satanic witch. Sweet. Well, I've <laughs> I've, I've had the good fortune of uh, eavesdropping on some of this, and holy shit, are you guys in for a treat? Rarely do you get, <laughs> I guess, in total, four very powerful women talking about lesser magic and giving a little bit of personal information throughout the process by way of examples and. It's something where if you just read the Satanic Witch on your own, there's a lot to be gleaned from it. Discussing it with other people is 
really nice because then you can extrapolate on ideas, hear different perspectives and, uh, and uh, takes. Uh, but when you have women of this caliber discussing it, it is it is a very special treat, and I'm very excited that Jesse, you you put this entire thing together, and uh, you you wrangled up these really. W- I'm sure they're not going to appreciate that reference. Uh, these wonderful women, and they might. Uh, you never know. <laughs> that's actually true. You, you never know. Um, yeah, this is really good. So don't miss this Valpurgis Noct. Uh, if you don't know when that is. Why the fuck are you listening to this podcast? Because it's only like the greatest <laughs> Church of Satan centered holiday. So, uh, you know, educate yourselves, people. Um, Satanic Witch episode, Valpurgis Noct. Look for it. Okay, so should we just start the show since we have so much to do? Sure. Let's do it. Though I am an active member... I do not speak for the Church of Satan. Well, nine cents letters. Okay, so do you want to read the letter and then we'll just sort of talk about it? Sure. How, if at all, has Satanism impacted the way you raise kids? Does it influence your parenting in any significant ways that you can articulate? How religiously or philosophically literate are your kids? And where do they stand with their own beliefs or lack thereof? From one uh, satanic family member to another, hail. <laughs> Yeah, I love this. Um, I love getting, I love getting uh, letters and notes and uh, opinions about stuff we cover from you guys uh, listening. It uh, it keeps us going, as it were. Um, to answer this gentleman's question, I have spoken to, and I, I've actually, you know, replied to the email directly already. But I have, uh, I've spoken to raising kids before. Um, I don't know if I've done an entire like episode centered around it though. And I actually didn't ask. <laughs> you may see something similar to this cropping up in other areas in the coming year. Um, not, you know, I, I don't know what I should say and what I shouldn't say about what I know, but uh, this is a topic that anyone who is a Satanist with children likes to discuss and likes to get other people's takes on. So I'll, I'll give you my <clears throat> how, how I roll with it. And, and Jesse, uh, if you... You know, obviously you don't have your own children, but you have uh, nieces and nephews, right? Yes. So, you know, any anything that you want to add to it, um, feel free. Um, so we'll do with the first one here. How has Satanism impacted the way you raise your kids? So the, the biggest takeaway for me of Satanism uh, going through adulthood was responsibility. Like that was the biggest thing. Owning up to my behaviors, my choices, and my mistakes. Um learning from them and using Satanism to move through life and, and uh, enrich my human experience as it were. That is how it's impacted the way I raise my kids. I demand that they are honest. I demand that they are responsible for what they do, good and bad, um, praise and consequence. And they, you know, I, more than anything, I just want them to be able to stand up on their own. You just never know if, if you're going to be around or, you know, what's going to happen. So I want to make sure that they're strong individuals. And so that is the greatest takeaway from Satanism for me as a, as a parent, as a father, making sure that my children are strong enough 
to challenge authority, but when necessary, to do what needs to be done and to listen and to think, uh, not just follow. Um, so the next one here, does it influence your parenting in any significant ways that you can articulate? I kind of cover this. Um, it, well, here's the thing. Y you don't even notice it until holidays come around, I think. Because you're just doing what you do as a parent. You're, you know, helping them experience life on their terms. And you're there when they fall and you let them make their own decisions and, you know, that sort of thing as much as possible. Uh, making sure that the content that they're consuming, whether it's uh, a video game or a movie or music or uh, friends talking or the environment they're in, is age appropriate. I think that's really important. And age appropriate as in maturity age, not necessarily physical age, because I think those two vary greatly. <clears throat> you don't want to... I would never like take the Satanic Bible out and put it in front of my kids and say, hey, it's Sunday, you need to read this. <laughs> like, that's just... I don't, I don't roll like that. My parents did that to me with uh, Mormon religion, and I would never, ever, ever do that. So they hear me doing these podcasts or they might hear, you know, late at night, uh, some ritual chanting or something like that. Um, I don't know why I said chanting because I don't really chant at all. <laughs> they may overhear, you know, things that that you necessarily wouldn't include them in. Um, but that's just life in general. You know, kids stumble across or kids get, um, they pick up uh, language and they pick up behaviors that they shouldn't. Or, or maybe is just a little bit older than they, you know, they are to really understand what they're watching or hearing or, you know, whatever. So if they ask me questions, I'll address it. If it's something horrific, I'll talk them through it. But otherwise, they don't have any reference of Satanism in their life in any way. And I am absolutely fine with that. You know, I, I found Satanism on my own. And if they end up becoming Satanist, then that's, that's on them. I'm not concerned about them, you know, following in my footsteps or, or being like me because they're not me. And I think that's probably the biggest takeaway for any individual, not necessarily just Satanist, but just any, any individual that has kids. You have to come to terms with this one simple fact. Your children are not you. You don't own them. You're simply raising them into their own individual human beings and then letting them move on. And I've seen parents who don't do this. And I've seen parents that are still like clinging on to their kids as their kids are just like, I don't know how to deal with society because I was never taught how to deal with society. And they're just failed human beings. Now, as a Satanist, that would, in my opinion, be a great sin as a parent to raise your children to not be able to stand up on their own two feet. Like, it's insane to me. So... I don't, I don't talk to my kids about Satanism. I don't talk to them about religion unless it comes up in a holiday reference. So, for example, um, you know, we do some like egg hunts and stuff. Um, we try to take advantage of as many holidays as possible in my household just because we think it's a nice way to deviate from the normal, you know, way to live your lives. Um, and so we like stuff eggs uh, with candy and do like little, you know, the shell eggs and do little um, egg hunts uh, in the morning. And so our son is old enough, and so, you know, he was helping us stuff. And I'm like, you know, do you believe in, uh, 
do you, do you know what Easter is all about? You know, how it originated um, with, you know, modern Christian society and, and what do you think of, uh, you know, these different ideas? And, you know, he's, gr- <laughs> he, and this relates to the third question here, how religiously philosophical, um, how religious or philosophically literate are my kids. Uh, my son is is pretty good. He, it's not like he goes and studies anything, but, you know, he was just like, uh, I don't believe in, in make, make-believe. I was like, really? What do you mean by make-believe? He's like, you know, God. <laughs> it's, it's just all made up. I don't believe it. I'm not, not ghosts, not God, nothing. And I got I to gotta be honest, as, and, and this may come as a surprise to some people, I'm a little disappointed by that. Not necessarily the God part, but the the scary ghost part, the monster under the bed part, the, the not knowing what could be out there part. I, I loved that as a kid. I loved the fear and the mystery and my son doesn't have that. And so sometimes I think I kind of failed as a human being, you know, and Jesse, maybe I'm going to have you jump in here really quick. What do you think about, um, you know, human beings historically in, in tribes would tell stories about how, you know, fables about why the weather was the way it was, or the moon looked the way it was, or this, the harvest was the way it was. You know, they'd make up these stories and they were, you know, fantastical ideas about gods and heroes. And do you think that myth is integral to a person? Like, do you think if, if a child is raised without embracing those myths as if they were real, do you, is that missing out on some part of being a human? Yeah, I think there's something missing there, but the difference is, I may be, a, this is personal bias, but I don't think the Christian myths are that good. You know, they're not that emotionally engaging. Yeah. Um, Santa Claus is more emotionally engaging. And gifts aside, it just, you know, this, this guy up in the north you know reindeer it's it's just more interesting for a kid yeah. anyway yeah i don't know i i mean he he definitely understands you know stuff like that where it's modern holiday and, and celebrations and stuff i don't know i, I kind of like the idea of of there being like a dark satan you know like hiding in punishment like I just sort of, look, you know, obviously that's one of the reasons why I, I looked into Satanism in the first place is because I, I like the idea. We, I, we all collectively as Satanists like the rebel hero. Yeah, and see, when I was growing up, we they never really talked about Satan. Really? Yeah, it wasn't, he was totally downplayed. Can you remind me what religion you grew up in? Uh, Catholic, then Lutheran, then back to Catholic. Wow, never mentioned it. Not, not that it was never mentioned. It's just it was totally downplayed. It was, you know, everything should focus on Jesus. Mm. And Jesus' story just really isn't all that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Quite a this, few holes. The, the passion at the end, not all that passionate, really, because they didn't even want to focus too much on that. You know, they, they wanted to keep everything the Sermon on the Mount, basically, and, and you know, a few parables here and there. Not all that interesting. The only, like the prodigal son I remember, because at least that one, somebody went away and did something interesting and then came back and apologized for it. But yeah, I think that might, to to my ears, that's what's missing. Yeah. Huh. Well, either way, I mean, this is, you know, this is what I've (laughs) I've ended up with my kids. They, They just... They, they're not very philosophically literate. They're too young to have studied philosophy in school. 
They're not religiously literate um, unless it's centered around a holiday and then it's all about myth. It's not about reality. Um, I did teach my kids that Santa was real for as long as I could keep it up because I love the idea of magic and I love the idea of being scared. Uh, I love the idea of boogeymen. And so, you know, I love ghost stories. So it's a little disappointing to me that he doesn't believe in any of that, but it's just a reality of, you know, as, as someone who raises their kids to be open and honest, that means that they're not going to believe in bullshit. <laughs> Good or bad, they're not going to believe it. I, I love, here's what I, I, I feel like I've succeeded with my children. It's that um, when they do something wrong and I challenge them on it, if my challenge isn't quite up to snuff, they will call me on it. Like if, if I get like pissed off over something, they'll step to me if it's a ridiculous reason or if it doesn't make sense. And as a parent, it can be a little bit frustrating having your kids challenge you, but I love it. I love that about it because it means that I'm doing something right. Like I'm, I'm allowing them to not allowing them. I'm encouraging them to challenge authority. And I, in life, if you don't know how to step up, you are going to be a failure. You have to learn how to step up one way or another. So, you know, when it comes to bullies, you know, my, my biggest, um, my biggest advice to my son was you're going to get knocked down, <laughs> like do everything you can to stand up for yourself. And if someone hits you, I am a hundred percent okay with you hitting them back. But, um, sometimes people are not going to like you for whatever reason, it won't make any sense to anyone but them. You, they're just not going to like you and they're going to want to pick on you. That's life and you can't hide from it. You have to embrace it and face it and deal with it. Um, you cannot hide from life and, and it seems to have worked. Uh, and again, you know, so to sort of uh, wrap this little rant here up, as a Satanist raising my kids, I just try to think of them as individual human beings that right now need a little bit of help but other than that they are their own people they have been pooping on their own since as early as they could they've been brushing their teeth on their own since as early as they could i don't coddle them i make them choose their clothes and sometimes it's it's ridiculous but sometimes it ends up really cool um if they need help with their homework i'll help them but i don't hover over them bugging them for help or to trying to, you know, you got to get a better grade with this. Um, unless it's actually like a D or something like that, then I lose my shit, but I just let them be them, their own help. And if they, their, you know, their own support system, and if they need extra help, then I'm definitely here to back them up. But as part of being a human man, you have to stand on your own. And I think it's, it's a very, very, very important thing. And that's, that just goes to what Satanism means to me as an individual. <clears throat> so you know maybe they'll maybe they'll catch on to it and maybe they won't but either way they'll be uh interesting human beings do you think you would uh do you have any advice for anyone that may you know raising kids what what you think would be good advice i think just somehow i mean you you talked about making sure they can stand up and i i think instilling in them the idea that they are self-directed and not other directed that's one mm -hmm. thing I try to do with my nieces and nephews is, you know, if I hear them saying that, you know, it, if they're expressing frustration over something as if there's nothing they could do to fix it, I'll try to, you know, even if they're bad suggestions, just throw out a few suggestions so they see that there are things they could do mm -hmm. so they never feel helpless. 
That's actually a really good, um, really good advice. That's a really good idea. I, <laughs> it reminds me like I had a, um, well, I have a, a number of nephews after all my family is Mormon. Um, and, uh, one of the boys was, this was years ago, it was one day talking about like some superhero or something and how he, he loved this superhero. And I just stopped, I was looking, I'm like, why do you idolize this superhero when everything that they embody is in you? Like you are that superhero, like everything about them, their strength, their willingness to, to go on a limb for what they believe in, whatever that happens to be the power within themselves to recognize and achieve their own goals, like that's in you. You don't need to look at something else and idolize it, just embody it. And that mentality, I think, is, it's not common nowadays. Instead, I think nowadays people are getting a lot of, well, everyone's special, even if you fail, at least you tried and trying is all that matters. Bullshit. That is not true. And you cannot be anything you want to be, by the way. I should just tack this on, too. Don't tell your kids that they can be whatever they want to be. Because the reality is, is everyone is born with innate capacities that they can have range through growth and practice, but not everyone has the potential of being a Beethoven. Not everyone has the potential of being a Van Gogh. It's just not true. So don't lie to your kids like that. Like, encourage them to discover what it is they're really good at, and that means exposing them to a lot of different things, and then support them when they find the one, if they find the one, that they really resonate with. I, my son hasn't really found one that he resonates with, but he's done a whole bunch of different shit trying to find it, you know? So, just, uh, yeah, just support your kids, help them, help them stand up, and, and that, that'll do it. Um, I probably didn't answer their question, but <laughs> I think that's enough for the nines and letters. Let's do a little infernal format. Okay. Here we go. Hey, what's going on, friends? Uh, infernal format. Get on the truck. You out there. All right, this is from Reuters, uh, Friday, April 3rd. California judge orders state to provide sex change surgery for a prisoner. A federal judge in San Francisco on Thursday ruled that California must provide sex reassignment surgery to a transgender inmate, calling denial of the procedure a violation of constitutional rights. U.S. District Judge John Tiger wrote in his 38-page order that the state was violating the constitutional rights of Michelle Lale Norsworthy, who was convicted of second-degree murder in April 1987 by not providing the operation. Tiger wrote that Noseworthy has Norsworthy had attempted other treatment options but says she still experiences, quote, excruciating pain and frustration, unquote, due to her condition, and her current hormone replacement therapy could threaten her liver function. I'm not going to read this whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, so what do you think? What do you think about that? Well, I just want to pick up one little piece further on. Mm -hmm. The operation would be the first in state prison history and could cost as much as $100,000. California Corrections Healthcare Service spokesman Joyce Handhold told the LA <laughs> Times. So, I have no problem with him, her, getting this operation. But why are they asking the state to pay for it? So really good. <laughs> so it, it looks like the the justification in here is that it's a treatment that is a, a, 
a reaction to a medical condition and that's why so if if you were in uh, prison and you had uh, some disorder or disease you would be treated for that disorder or disease um, just as part of you know maintaining basic health and welfare for the inmates so I think that's where it comes from um, but <laughs> well, well, seems... why it, you wouldn't I mean <clears throat> if you worked at McDonald's you wouldn't be Oh, you know, the, the state wouldn't pick up the tab for that. Right. And and so it does, I mean, we're forced to look at this in a number of different ways. So that um, while, and this is, you know, a broader comment about the our, our prison systems anyway, but when you are uh, put in prison, you are now a ward of the state and the state takes care of you. They pay for your food, your medicine, your clothing, your housing, and everything. And I don't agree with it. I think the whole thing is fucked up. Um, but that's why. And so with any treatment, whether it's asthma, whether it's, you know, what, whatever, um, typhoid, the state would pick up the bill to, to treat that, that symptom or that problem. Um, California is screwed right now too. So this is a, <laughs> It seems like a big deal. Um, so what, I mean, do you think, do you think, uh, well, obviously, um, it is a medical disorder. I mean, it's categorized in the DSM, gender dysphoria. So do you think that something like this is worth treatment, uh, this type of treatment? Because there is hormone therapy that she's currently on, um, but I guess the, I mean, Reading this, it made it sound like if they had the operation, she wouldn't have to take the hormone therapy. That doesn't make sense to me. Is that what you took away from this? Yeah, but it's admittedly something I don't know a whole hell of a lot about. Yeah, I, and I don't but, either. I mean, I both of us are going just did, off. Yeah. yeah, just going off what what's written here. Um. So, well, here here's my opinion. I think uh, I think it's terrible that um, she discovered or became aware of self-identifying three years into prison. Um, I think it sucks, but you're an inmate. And that means that there are going to be limits to what can be done, you know, for you. I mean, you killed someone. You're convicted of it. Why the... I can't... I cannot fathom how this has anything to do with a violation of constitutional rights. Like, as long as they're providing an option of dealing with this, it like that's all that needs to be done. You don't have to do every option, right? I mean, if it, okay, let's say they had AIDS and they're being treated for AIDS. Are they forced to take experimental, to, to pay for experimental drugs, or they just do sort of the basic, you know, aid treatment that exists today? Well, that's if you compare it to AIDS. I mean, let's say you compare it to impacted wisdom teeth. And they're saying, oh, we'll, we'll keep giving you painkillers, but we won't let the dentist come in and pull them out. Ooh. That's, that's an interesting comparison. Yeah, I mean, if... I don't... I mean, if they've set the bar as you're a ward of the state and therefore the state will pay for all your medical care and a doctor has decided that this is medically necessary, then California's screwed. They got to pay for it. But I just, I don't like the idea of 
you know, going becoming a ward of the state, and now all the taxpayers have to pay for everything that this murderer did mm-hmm. or or needs. You know, it's that's screwy. It is. It's interesting because it, it forced me to immediately start thinking of prison. Should I think of prison as a place of rehabilitation, or should I think of it as a place of punishment? So, I think depending on which side you come down on, I think you're going to have a a clear decision about your opinion of this case. So for you, Jesse, do you mind me asking what, how do you see prison? Is it, is it a rehabilitation or is it punishment? Uh, see, I, I think of it more as just keeping dangerous people off the street, which unfortunately is not what it's used for because, you know, most people in prison are in there for nonviolent crimes for, you know, selling drugs. Right. Yeah, it, that's interesting. I didn't actually take the just the containment view of it. So in that view, um, do you think that inmates have or should have all of their constitutional... I mean, let, let's look at it this way. If you are ever uh, in prison, you no longer... You have rights taken away that are from the Constitution. You don't get to use firearms anymore. You don't get to vote if memory serves. So if you're already having constitutional rights taken away because of your behaviors, then why should we cater to all of them? Why shouldn't there be some other ones that are refused as well? I mean, I have, I, I recognize um, uh, gender dysphoria as, a, in my opinion, it is a reality. It is something that people fight with in their lives and it must tear them up um i can't identify it so i can't really empathize but i can understand that it would be a really really difficult thing it is not life-threatening unless you count depression which can be treated quite well and so i don't think that unless it's a life-threatening treatment that's at necessary simply just to keep you alive i don't think that the state should pick it up like personally, I think it's an absurd request of the citizens of California to pay for a convicted murderer's sex change operation. Like that sounds insane to me. And so I don't, I just can't, I don't understand how it, it's not only accepted, but a federal judge ruled in favor of it. That seems so crazy to me. And maybe this is just a very visible, very visible symptom of a system that's just grown way too big. It's it's too big a business on its own. There's too many people in jail for too many reasons. And the whole thing is just out of control. And then something like this happens. Interesting. It would be nice if something like this was a catalyst to some form of change. I mean, honestly, in my opinion, I think our prison system should much... Well, it's tough because there's so... There's so many missteps that can take place before they become an inmate, <laughs> like just in the judicial system itself. And so it's easy to say, well, if you're in prison, you deserve to be there, but it's really yeah. just not the reality. Yeah, because so, there's all the wrongful imprisonments, and we have to yeah. keep that in mind too. But if we weren't imprisoning so many people for so many reasons, we might not have so many mistakes. That's a really good point. So, you know, if, if we did cut down war on drugs being the first and easiest, um, that would free up a ton of people 
uh, to be released back into gen pop of the world. <laughs> and then they can go on welfare and we can... <laughs> <laughs> From one tit to the other. Um, but I'm sure some of them would, you know, stand back up on their feet. I would uh, hope I, so. <clears throat> yeah, I don't think... I mean, that would be a horrible stereotype just to say everyone that's in prison is just going to continue being a welfare. No, well, the, you come out of prison, it's not the easiest thing in the world to get a job after that. Right, but if, if what you were put in there for is no longer a federal offense, mm. then you no longer have that as a job application barrier. You know what I mean? Then again, if they legalize drugs as well as end the war on drugs and they release everybody, you've got a lot of experienced salesmen. It's <laughs> very true. <laughs> Hanging out in front of middle schools. Hey, you want to you wanna try this jag? <laughs> Sorry, this is just my spot. I, it used to be weed, but now I'm selling cars. So, <laughs> No, yeah, I, this is a really interesting um, article. It, it brings up a lot of contrasting emotions in me, and I wish I could just come down on one side or the other with it. I don't think the state should have to pay for it unless it's something where it's like a loan, you know, and then, then that individual has to work it off or has to do something in order to repay it in some way. I don't know how a, a convicted murderer could do that. And so that's what makes it all the more challenging in my head to justify giving the operation, even though it's going to happen. Like it's it's in it's in motion. So I don't know. This is this is a really good one. And, and I love that it forces us to think about what the role of prisons in our society Um and then because of those roles, wherever you come down on it, whether or not you should treat inmates in certain ways or, or allow them full access to the Constitution. Um, because let's be honest, the Constitution is a social contract. Convicted murderers have foregone the social contract. So <laughs> why the fuck should we uphold it? It, it seems... Cr ah! ah! I'm going nuts. All right. Well... Well, that's that, right? So, yeah. If you ever get, um, if you do ever end up killing anyone, just keep in mind you're still going to be taken care of. Which <laughs> doesn't seem like a huge deterrent to me. Um, all right, let's do the next one. That's all right. That's a little depressing. That kind of bugs me. Um, this next one is it's not so much an article as a collection of notes. <laughs> I think, a, a collection of rulings. So this is sent to me by one of you listeners. Thank you again. Uh, Satanic uh, reverses. Religious exceptions are a real win for devil worshippers. Ooh, I hate that fucking... Ah. Um, behold the demonic spawn of the crumbling church-state divide. And it looks like this was posted by a Stephanie Mensimer, uh, March 30. Um, okay, so this was sent to me, you know, with honestly saying... No COS was ever mentioned in this, but there's good reason for that because, and, and I don't know that everyone fully can wrap their head around this, but it's an incredibly important point to make. The Church of Satan as an organization does not support social or political agendas. The Church of Satan is not like a hive mind. It's up to individual Satanists to do whatever they think is in their own self-interest. The organization does not take a side and cannot take a side logically. Otherwise, it would be like eliminating or, or, or ostracizing many of its own members. That's absurd. And that's really not what it's there for. 
So, uh, you know, you had, do have these sort of pseudo groups cropping up saying, well, the Church of Satan doesn't do this or doesn't do that. It's not supposed to do any of that. Like, they never tried to do any of that. So, of course, they don't. But you can't use that as justification to act like a jackass in the public sphere, even though these people are. Um, and because they have, some interesting things have come to light. So here's here's a couple of the bullet points. Two days after the Supreme Court's decision, a newly converted Satanist started asking towns in Florida if he could open town meetings with a prayer to his, quote, dude in charge. He hasn't been able to yet, but at least they're allowing him in and continuing to ask. Uh, another one in September, an agnostic pagan pantheist opened a county commission meeting in Escambia County, Florida with two-and-a-half-minute chant invoking the elements and four directions. Powers of air, we invoke and call you Golden Eagle of the Dawn, Star Seeker Whirlwind. Oh, I just want to punch him in his face. Um, here's another one. After a judge ruled in September that religious pamphlets could be handed out in public schools in Orange County, Florida, the Satanic Temple published the Satanic Children's Big Book of Activities, a coloring book that includes a connect-the-dots pentagram. Uh, I'm going to do one more here. In December, a chapter of the Satanic Temple was allowed to display a fallen angel in the capital of where else? Yes, that's right, Florida, alongside a holiday displaying uh, a flying spaghetti monster worshipping Pastafarians and Festivus pole made of beer cans. So we all know where the COS falls on this, and if you don't, you should be probably paying attention to news.churchofsane.com. Um, Jesse, yes. what do you think? Is this a victory for other left-hand or occult minded religions did these kids not learn what the founding fathers did mm -hmm. at the start of this country that made it so great for 200 plus years <laughs> that they're just gonna that. throw it all away i think i've got a better idea yeah it you is don't. weird because <clears throat> no i'm sorry go ahead I'm just going to say, you don't. You don't have a better idea. You're stupid. <laughs> Go read. Yeah. Go back to your basement in your grandma's house, you fucking failures. So um, I, have a, I have a big problem with this, obviously, because, first of all, not everyone deserves to be seen. Uh, flying Spaghetti Monster is a joke. It's not an actual fucking religion. Like, it, it's a total joke. But now it's being seen as an actual religion because they have their own monuments and stuff you have a fucking festivus pole it was a goddamn joke from seinfeld and that is up there um it we have officially lost our collective religious minds like can we just stop the fucking madness and yes it is the goddamn christian's fault for starting but why the hell do we have to continue it like, I don't understand why there's these pseudo-satanic groups trying to say, well, well, they're recognized. Why can't you see me? Why do you need their justification? Why do you need their approval? I just don't understand. <laughs> I don't get it. So, yes, some people see this as a, I don't know any of them, but maybe some people see this as some sort of victory. Like, hey, hey, we're no longer ostracized. But guess what? You are. You always will be. And it's not okay. It is just not the intention of the United States to hold every religion in its own pedestal, in its own uh, religious structure. Like, that. that's Rome. That is not America. And no matter what Lenin fucking said years ago before he died, this is not Rome. America is not Rome. Fuck. You know, I, I think you kind of hit it on the head when you said it's attention-seeking. Because, I mean, 
Seinfeld invented Festivus, and I apologize, I forget the name of the guy who invented the Flying Spaghetti Monster. But those were original ideas and great parodies and funny. And now there's people, you know, I want to call myself a Pastafarian so I can ride this guy's coattails is what it comes down to. (laughs) You know, it's not original and and you're just taking it to stupid lengths now. It's not even funny anymore. Seriously. I mean, look, I'm a Satanist, but I think the Satanic Children's Big Book of Activities is a horrible idea. That's coming from a Satanist. (laughs) Like, I just... I cannot get behind indoctrinating children in anything. I mean, we just obviously spoke to this, so I'm not going to rant on it too much. But how little do you respect these individuals that you're using them in some sort of political game? Like, these are human beings. These are individual people that you are, like, just fucking with their heads. Kids, they don't know better yet. You have to give them a chance. It drives me crazy. And just be... Oh, here's the other thing. Okay, so this is a, a broader broader statement. And this might be... This might piss my wife off, actually. My wife... Uh, w- <laughs> oh, fuck. I don't know if I should say this. Um, say it. Say it. <laughs> yeah. So she loves the idea of getting even. Loves it. Loves the idea. And I think everyone, in general, loves the idea of getting even. But... Life isn't about being even. It's never been about being even. In fact, when you look at our sort of uh, founding principles, all men are created equal, not all men are continually equal. No, we're all created in the same way, and then from that point, we make or break our own futures. And we are not equal as individuals. So we shouldn't be pretending like, well, just because there's a Christian children's coloring book, there should be a satanic children's color. No, you don't need to be even. All you have to do is point out the absurdity of the one, you don't need the other. And what you do by giving them the other option is show how fucking short-sighted and stupid you are as a human, as a grown-ass adult. How little you actually understand about how the world works and how human beings interact with each other. You are, it has to be even. We have to be fair. Everyone must be represented. Fuck you, not everyone is equal, and you are not equal. You are less than. Quite literally. Mathematical symbol, less than. That is you. So stop fucking pretending like you're something better. You are worse. So much worse. And that is something to say, that you're worse than Christians. Not only because, one, you see the absurdity of what they're doing, but that you would lower yourself to do the same fucking thing. I don't think Christians realize how dumb they are. They just kind of go about their lives. You recognize that, and you decide to follow them. What the fuck? Come on! Okay, I'm done. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, does that bother you when I do that? We, we should do a safe word like Aaron does. <laughs> no, no. I, as long as I'm not standing in front of you, because I've seen your road rage, and you just spit <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> it's I, I never noticed it until I started recording those, and I was like, wow, I spit a lot. I feel <laughs> sorry for my kids when I get upset. They get spit on. Ugh. That insult well, that don't energy. keep them in line. They don't want to get yelled at by that. <laughs> They just don't want to get spit on. That's really how it is. I can take the yelling. I can't take all this saliva. Um, all right. Well, let's let's how about we go to a better topic. Let's do a little I Dream of Jesse. All right. Yeah. Did you ever want to sell your soul to the devil? 
Have all your wildest dreams become reality? You just sign a blood on the dotted line. Of course, not everyone can find the crossroads, so let me make it easy for you. Tune in every month to Nine Cents, and I'll bring you Down to the Crossroads. We'll discuss the blues, the devil, and everything in between. Down to the Crossroads with your host, Aaron Casabaugh. Every month, only on NineCentsPodcast.com. Jesse, what do you want? Well, first, Jesse, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to address me as master. I, I am your master, after all. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yes, master. That's better. Now look, I've got guests coming over tonight, and I want you to entertain them. What do I look like a belly dancer? Oh, I, I assume that was part. I mean, the outfit. It, it kind of suggests. You may be used to dance. Listen, the gin put me in the bottle. He forgot to add the preservatives. Now, the outfit may be wrinkle-free, but what in it ain't. You don't like it? Call the number on the bottle and complain. I hate confrontations. The only reason I don't avoid them entirely is because I know better. Situations rarely improve without them, but a badly handled confrontation might make things worse. So today is all about positive outcomes to necessary confrontations. Ask yourself the following question before confronting someone. Do you want this relationship to continue? It doesn't matter what kind of relationship it is. Could be someone as significant as your spouse. Could be someone as insignificant as the manager of a restaurant that gave you bad service. Do you want to stay married? Do you want to eat at that restaurant again without feeling like a doormat? If the answer is yes, then you don't want to go into this all hot-headed. It doesn't matter how significant the person is to you, but let's use a spouse as an example. Because I recently heard about a study done on marriage quality. It seems no matter what you do, marriage quality goes downhill over time. Which sucks for those of us in long marriages. (laughs) But they did find that spouses can make their marriage quality diminish slower if they learn one little trick. I'll tell you the trick in a second, but can I just say this is probably the most depressing bit of science news I've heard in quite some time? According to this study, on average, marriages just get suckier and suckier and suckier. I am hoping that they used a small sample size when they conducted this research. Anyway, so the trick to having a marriage that diminishes in quality more slowly is to adopt a third-party perspective when discussing disagreements. So if my husband and I argue about something, I would try to think what one of our friends might say about it. A friend who wants the best for both my husband and I. I haven't tried this with my husband, but I did try it with my boss after he sent me an angry email. Rather than fire off a charged response, I tried to imagine I was one of the other managers. I wrote the first draft as if I was him and then changed the pronouns. It worked. I came off looking so calm and cool and professional because I was pretending to be someone calm and cool and professional. Then, having written the response that way, it was easy to incorporate that into my bearing when I spoke with him in person. Suddenly, I am unflappable, and he can't be all hot-headed when his subordinate is speaking calmly and rationally, right? Along the same lines is to keep calm by using non-blaming speech. To do this, switch to a passive voice. For example, you could say, 
the call I was expecting never came, rather than, you didn't call me. It states a fact without sounding like an accusation. You want to state the facts as best as you can using as passive a voice as possible, of which you are not aware. Maybe the person didn't call you because their dad just had a heart attack. You don't know. And if you've been careful to sound calm and, non and non-judgmental, and then ask for this information, you'll probably get it in an equally calm and non-defensive way. With all the facts laid out, now's the time for one or more parties to make an apology. This might include you, so just be open to that possibility going in. If you haven't come across this little bit of wisdom yet, there are five methods of apologizing, and everyone has strong preferences to the method of apologies they think matter. The five apology methods are, one, express regret. Two, accept responsibility. Three, make restitution. Four, genuinely express the desire to change your behavior. Five, request forgiveness. So for me personally, genuinely expressing a desire to change behavior is by far the most meaningful apology. Requesting forgiveness is dead last. And therefore, if I neglect to call someone, I'm likely to say something like, I'm so sorry. I set a reminder to, for myself so this won't ever happen again. I can't even imagine saying something like, I'm so sorry, would you forgive me? Requesting forgiveness smacks of insincerity to me, and it sounds like begging, but that's just me. There are people in this world for which an apology only matters if it includes a request for forgiveness. And if I'm not willing to say those words, I'm not going to have an easy time maintaining a relationship with those people. And remember, I'm trying to handle this confrontation well because I want to continue this relationship. So it is to your advantage to practice the five methods of apologizing for a number of reasons. First off, if you care enough about the relationship to make an apology, you should care enough to make sure the message is heard, not just the words. Think of the five methods of apologizing as five languages the recipient of the apology might speak. You have to say it in their language for the meaning to come across. A second reason to practice the five methods is so that you can hear all five. Not everyone on the planet knows these five methods. And if all they're going to say is, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? You have to be able to hear this as sincerity on their part. If someone asks for my forgiveness, since I don't speak that language, but I'm practicing learning to hear it, I can reply with, yes, I forgive you, but I would really appreciate it if I could get some sort of reassurance that this won't ever happen again. I've heard their method of apologizing, I've acknowledged it, and I've requested my own way of apologizing in addition. A third reason to practice the five apologies is when putting it in writing or when dealing with groups. In those cases, always use all five. You want to make sure everyone who hears you or reads your message gets the apology in the language they speak. And if it's in writing, you can't know how many people will be reading it now and into the future. You have to cover all your bases. Here's one last reason to practice all five methods. This one you can have some fun with. If you can learn other people's preferred method, you can do things like commiserate with them when they're upset. It helps you to appear to be on the same page, someone who thinks like them. What? Lauren didn't call you? Did she at least have the decency to ask for your forgiveness? <laughs> if you were to try to list out all the things a complete witch or warlock should be good at, apologizing might not immediately jump to mind. But remember, our symbol is the scapegoat. 
we must learn to give the apology others want to hear if we're going to play the role, if we're going to play that role effectively. But let's back out of our focus on the apology and get back to the overall confrontation. Once the apology or mutual apologies are given, it's a bad form to do anything short of call the matter settled. If that bothers you, remember these are just words. It's bad form not to call the matter settled, but it might be bad judgment to believe the matter is settled. Even if you're certain the other party isn't sincere, accept their apology in the moment and express your doubts later. This shows a cool head and a thoughtful response. An immediate rejection of the apology can easily be interpreted as pettiness to onlookers, even if you're right. If you have sincerely stated the facts as objectively as you can, and sincerely tried to listen for one of the valid apology methods, and still feel you've been wronged by someone who is not genu genuinely sorry for it, well, you would be a sucker to stop here. A working may be in order. Legal action may be in order. Spitting on their hamburger may be in order. <laughs> and at this point, your target's awareness or ignorance of your intentions can be manipulated to your advantage. A calm confrontation with a, polite accepted, a politely accepted apology can enable you to appear your target's best buddy soon after. A calm confrontation with a politely accepted apology, coupled with evidence that you were wronged and that the apology was insincere, well, that will win you allies. When it comes to apologies, knowing the five methods is best. When it comes to confrontations, remaining calm and cool is best. When it comes to outcomes, Understanding the Benjamin Franklin effect is best. Now, Ben Franklin, if you haven't heard this one before, had an enemy and asked this enemy if he could borrow, borrow a, a rare book. Franklin gave the book back a week later, and the book's owner was now Franklin's friend. I'm oversimplifying this. Google it for the full story. But the gist is, if you do something for someone, you will start to invent reasons you did something for that person, and you will begin to believe your own bullshit. Franklin's enemy hated Franklin, but loaned the book so as not to look petty. Afterwards, he felt conflicted on why he loaned the book, then resolved his cognitive dissonance by determining Ben Franklin must be a decent guy after all. Don't do what Ben Franklin's enemy did. Don't buy your own bullshit. The Ben Franklin effect is widely known and understood, and many people may try to use it on you. Either don't loan the proverbial book out, and manage the consequential social shaming you'll receive, or make yourself a note in writing, reminding yourself, I am loaning this book to lure this man into a false sense of security. If you're applying the Ben Franklin effect, remember to ask for a favor publicly, where there's not only the threat of loss of reputation if he turns you down, but there's social capital to be gained if he indulges you. Confrontations are tough. That's why many people avoid them, but learning to manage them is such a widely applicable skill that I believe you'll find it's well worth the effort. Hell, <clears throat> yes, yes, yes. Um, I, I love this. This is, uh, this is some really, really good lesser magic information here. Um, thank you for that. That was awesome. Thank you. I've... <laughs> I've found myself uh, in the apology sphere quite a bit in my life. <laughs> I tend to overreact if you couldn't figure that out already. Um, I've never asked for if someone else could forgive me except with my children. I feel like that is, it's putting yourself in such a vulnerable spot that you are waiting for them to give you approval. And I feel like as a parent that that's a good thing. Like you need to 
let your children decide your fate, as it were, with that is in that outcome. It gives them a little sense of authority, and it, it's kind of humbling because it forces you to realize that you are not the god on Mount Olympus. You are just another person. So, you know, I've, I found myself not being able, to, like, you know, I'll overreact over a grade or um, some shitty behavior, and I'll discipline them, but it'll be a little overzealous, and so I'll, it'll just eat me up. So I go in their room and I sit down with them and make sure they're on eye level. And I just explain that, you know, they don't deserve the reaction that I gave. The reaction I gave wasn't fair and it wasn't right. And I am truly sorry for it. I express how much I love them and that I respect them as individuals. And that's why I don't think that they deserved it uh, in hindsight. And, you know, I ask them for forgiveness. And sometimes I get it and sometimes I don't. Um, when I don't get it, I always deserve it because I'm an asshole sometimes, most all the time. <laughs> but it's, I think it's important. And I think what you're speaking to is knowing your audience, understanding, first of all, understanding the rules of the game of uh, diplomacy. It is important to, to learn how to apologize. And even if you don't mean it, learn how the, the other person expects it to be done. I, you're spot on with this. I think this is amazing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I can't really <laughs> praise it anymore. I really, I truly, <laughs> it sounds stupid because I always say this. I really, really do dig this stuff. I, I would never have been able to think of something like this in this, formulate it in this way and deliver it in this way. And it's so amazing that you can. So I, I truly respect that. Where can the people listening find out a little bit more of Jesse online? Well, they can email me at ideojesse uh, yeah, at gmail.com. And every so often I manage to make it onto Twitter or Facebook, too. It's <laughs> <laughs> been about a week now since I've been on either one, but uh, at Damned Lucky or Jesse Twain. All right. Oh, and I've got a blog. Oh, yeah, you do have a blog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, drafts from a Satanic Windbag at WordPress.com. Good reason for you listeners to follow the blog. Not only is there traditionally a transcript for everything that she talks about here on the segment, but there's also extra content as well. So I would definitely encourage you to go check that out online. Drafts from a Sanhannic, windbag.wordpress.com. All right, Jesse, let's do a little creature feature with the Militant Eroticism contest announcement. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the creature of <laughs> Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I'm being joined by a den our den of our own militant eroticism. I'm taking ownership <laughs> for no fucking reason. How are you, man? I am I'm so happy. I'm so happy. <laughs> well, let's uh let's get to it then. What are you so happy for? I got a blowjob. <laughs> I actually thought it was going to be what we were talking about. Okay, well, so the... Oh, hey, I, no, I no, cannot no. fault you. I love me a blowjob. Let me ask you something about the BJ. Uh, personal preference. Do you prefer the ball play, or do you like the little stinky pinky? Oh, no, I don't want the stinky pinky when I'm getting... I stinky pinky me later. Yeah. All right. Uh, no, 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 but I got this blowjob. All right, my first blowjob in months. Yeah. While reading my book. My no! book. <laughs> I was having a beer, reading my book, and getting a blowjob. It was just, it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. Okay, so wait a second. 
reading your book. My book. So this is the long-awaited Milton eroticism book. Right? <laughs> it is coming out. That's awesome. Okay, so this is actually why we have you on. Not to talk about blowjobs, to talk about your book. That oh, wow. is... Okay, so it, when did you first announce that Milton eroticism was going to be taking uh, a book form? I think I started hinting at it in October. Whoa. October or late September. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Holy <laughs> crap. That's a very, very long time to, uh, right? to be hinting. This, this, this took a lot fucking longer than I ever <laughs> thought. I thought it would be out by November. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I'm like, oh, shit, I've already done. Easy. <laughs> no. No. I, no. <laughs> the, first, the person who put this whole thing in my head, I had to apologize to for making fun of him. Because I'm like, ah, it's easy. What are you talking about? It's going to be difficult. Like, let me, yeah. <laughs> let me stop you there for just a second. Uh, what, I mean, you announced this late, late uh, mid last year, late last year. Who who put the idea in your head? How did this entire process begin? Um, I was I was hanging out at the Black House with a uh, uh, with High Priest Peter Gilmore and High Priestess Peggy Nadramia, and me and Peter were having, but he was having tea. I was having chicory, which he thought was coffee. That was a funny story, um, <laughs> and he suggested I should put this into. He, he, he suggested I take the essays from Milton Rossism and put and put a book out. And I'm like, nah. <laughs> so wait, has and, he had he heard the the episodes before that point, or have you just been talking about it? Um, I'm a, I'm pretty sure he's listened to Milton Rossism. I know Peggy listens to nonsense uh, re yeah. religiously, <laughs> <laughs> ironically, uh, right? <laughs> um. That's, so, I mean, that's a huge compliment just in and of itself that, you know, and okay. So let me ask you really quick. When you're, when you're having uh, a drink or dinner or just hanging out, have you gotten past like the, oh my gosh, I am hanging out with my high priest part of it? Um, it that's starting to happen. I, I still get a little googly. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> but it's, uh. You know, it's the same thing happened with um, a few other uh, Satanists that, that I had heard of. Or the same thing happened with uh, David Harris when I first met him. I was all starstruck because I've been listening to Satanism today since I was a teenager. Yeah. So when I first met him, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and after a few times, you know, it's just um, it, it went away. And uh, like, ah, no, he's a he's a friend. He's a buddy. He's 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 a prick. That's that's <laughs> you know how much I like pricks. <laughs> so no, it's it's starting to go away. Right? You know the starstruck thing. Yeah. So that I mean, just going back to um, the excitement of of someone of uh, Magus Gilmore's caliber. I mean, looking at the Church of Satan as a whole and Satanism as a whole, it's a mutual admiration society, and a lot of people I think don't feel like they measure up sometimes or maybe they don't they're, they're a little afraid of joining because they just don't feel like they have what it takes but for Megas Gilmore to, to sort of pressure you to put out a volume of your writings that's that's huge validation right 
Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think that's part of the reason why I told them no. But when we got it, like we're we're just sitting there. He, I'm, I'm debating with him over why I shouldn't do something that I've wanted to do for almost twenty years. Because I'm that kind of I'm that kind of guy. <laughs> nice. Even Darren was like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> he won in the argument, so you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's now done. So obviously, it's he won. Done. I think I even put I put that in the introduction. Like, I'm, you know, that's the kind of guy I am. I'm going to tell my high priest, no, I don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Holding my lolly. <laughs> um, <laughs> in a bow tie, little Lord Falkler. <laughs> um, I won't write it. No, that's amazing, man. I, I think that's a part. But I have an essay in the book uh, speaking of that about um, you know being young and having uh, being surrounded by older people and uh, who who've done a lot and that you respect and you you get this feeling because you're young. Mm-hmm. Say, how oh, how could I measure up? And I think that's part of the reason why I said no to the book. Because I'm like, oh, even if I put out a book, it's it's not going to be what I've read. And now I'm looking at it, I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> oh, that's right. I'm a kid compared to almost any of my friends. So, <laughs> You're the young buck of the group. Uh, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, you had already mentioned, you had already written, if not the majority, all of these essays. So what was it like going back for when, you know, I mean... Presumably, these have been essays that have been written for years. What what was it like going back to that older content and rereading it with where you are now in life? Exhausting, and I'm like, holy shit! I have to stop writing when I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's I I have to give credit to my editor, man, because damn. <laughs> it, it was uh it was exhausting and it really just um it uh it it how do i put it it forces you to um to demand more out of yourself right yeah you know, uh when you look back at something you did and you thought it was great and then you open it again and you're like holy shit no it isn't mm. it's um it's an eye opener yeah and it's uh one it's one big kick in the one big kick in the ego. Well, I mean, you went through the hard work, you went through the editing process, the design process. It is now presumably at the printer and we actually have a release date, right? We do. So what is uh, the release date of Milton eroticism? April 15th. April 15th. (laughs) So uh, can I ask you why April 15th? Uh, when I was a kid, I was upset, and it's very important to remember this. This was before that fucking movie came out, all right? I'm an original. (laughs) It was the day the Titanic sank, and when I was a kid, I was, yeah, um, and I was obsessed with the Titanic. I I had, um, I don't know, over 20 books on that freaking boat, tons of 3D uh, 3D puzzles of it, uh, models, sculptures of it. I have t-shirts posters and then uh, you know i went to the theater and when the movie came out i kept going to the theater i think i saw it five times even though it's not that good of a movie it's just i wanted to see the boat yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's really what it is i just wanted to keep seeing the boat 
and um, Leo DiCaprio isn't my type, so it, you know that wasn't that wasn't the reason. But um, so it, when when I was thinking of release dates, I, I kept picking. I'm a stickler for meaning, so I had to mm-hmm. keep picking days that meant something to me, and all of them kept going by because this. It, I didn't realize how much work a book required, so I was being. There isn't a word above idealism from what I was seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. So I picked this day and it feels like everything kind of came full circle. An obsession built on an obsession built on an obsession. And here's the result. So it's, it's nice. That's, I mean, there, there is, I don't know, maybe I'm reading a little too much into it. There, There is something romantically tragic on many levels about the Titanic. I've never seen the movie, so I don't know about that part, but just the, you know, the unsinkable ship is sort of a, uh, a champion of, of engineering a feat, the largest ship ever made. And, and it just went down. <laughs> like it was a, a deco beauty and it just died. <laughs> Seemingly unforeseen uh, reasons. Um, and it's just this, this tragedy. So was there any connection with that element of it for you? Um, I guess human arrogance, like, ah, uh, yeah, yeah, it's the unsinkable ship or, yeah. uh, you know, every, everybody's, everybody's monogamous. And I know, I know that I'm good and bad. I don't, um, I don't need to read a book or that, that incessant human arrogance drives me absolutely not. And this is coming from an arrogant man. So, <laughs> <laughs> And I think that kind of goes with um, what I've been saying in the shows and in, in the book is don't be so presumptuous. Mm-hmm. Uh, learn something. Make sure it works for you. Before you get on a boat or sail it across the Atlantic, make sure the thing can fucking work <laughs> and that it is actually unsinkable. So. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, um, April 15 is a couple weeks away. Do we have the opportunity of a contest, perhaps? Uh, yes. Yeah, contest time. Appreciate it. Appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> okay, yeah. so at the time people are actually hearing this, uh, let me look at my calendar really quick. It's going to be the 6th of April. So that gives just over a eh, about a week and a half-ish for people to enter this contest. So uh, first of all, let's uh, explain what people need to do in order to enter the contest. You need to, uh, here's, here's the question I'm posing. Um, if you knew the Titanic was sinking, what would be your last act of depravity or, um, yeah, depravity on that ship? So if you were on that ship and you knew it was going down, what would be the last act of sexual, uh, depravity? on this planet what would you do and then you have to hashtag militant eroticism answer that question with a hashtag militant eroticism to get your name in the hat and i do have a hat hey (laughs) this is great because first of all you're gonna i mean chances are you're probably gonna die there were survivors but let's just say you were gonna (laughs) die you have the opportunity to have one last sexual exploit or one last fetishistic exploit I mean, no barriers, no judgments on anyone's part because it's going to be over after this. This is your last hurrah. What is it going to be? That 
is an exciting proposition. I'm not entirely sure I would feel comfortable saying <laughs> what it would be. Yeah, so when I, when I see these answers, I will have my notebook out. Like, <laughs> All right, this guy likes this. I file that away because he's also cute. So if I ever meet him, I know, I know what he's always wanted. Yeah, yeah. Holla! <laughs> okay, so this is some revealing information. Um, what do they get for entering, and what if they are the one who wins? If if you win, you get the first copy of Medal of Generoticism signed and personalized. So you would just tell me what you want me to write in the thing, and I will sign it, and I will mail it to you for free. That's fantastic. So you get a free copy of Milton Rossism, the first copy available, signed and personalized by the author at NRDEN, all for just sending in through Facebook, Twitter, or Google Plus your last act of depravity with the hashtag Milton Rossism if you are on the Titanic. That is super simple. That is a kick-ass award that you have the opportunity to win. Uh, so oh, is there anywhere people can go online other than Facebook, Google Plus, or Twitter to find out a little bit more about the book or its availability or pricing or anything like that? There is a website out there with a picture of a big naked man <laughs> called militanteroticism.com where you can go and learn about all this crap. Militanteroticism.com. Okay, so if you have any questions, any concerns, any issues, Go to MiltonAndRossism.com. There's going to be contact information there. There's going to be links to different social network pages uh, so you can connect with Aden. There's going to be uh, contest information there in case you forget what we're saying. Uh, this is really exciting. So this award is going to be a personalized copy of the book. What What is this book like? Uh, is it like a paperback or something? No, it's hardcover because, you know, <laughs> if it's not hard, <laughs> it's not worth it. <laughs> Nice. Very, very nice. So a hardcover copy of the book before it's available, all for sending in your last act of depravity with the hashtag of Milton Eroticism Contest. And here's the reality of it. You don't even really have to send it in anywhere. All you have to do is post it to your own page or post it to Milton Eroticism on Facebook or just anywhere. As long as that hashtag is in it, we'll be able to track it down and have your name. And uh, if there's any questions or concerns, you can reach out and say, hey, did you see my social networking post here? And we can verify whether or not we did see it or not. Um, all right. So uh, we're going to be announcing it on the release date of the 15th. Yeah. Is that right? Oh, OK. That is correct. So you and I are going to be talking with the regular Milton Rossum segment, I believe, on the 19th of April, right? That, uh, yeah. Ish. So we'll we'll go over some more and, and announce the winner again there. Um, but really, we will have a winner in hand on the 15th of April uh, for that tragic day <clears throat> the Titanic sank. All right. Well, uh, Aden, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for allowing uh, Nine Cents the opportunity to promote this very exciting uh, book release of Milton Rossism. I've had eyes on it, and I am wildly impressed with it. I think, uh, you know what, for, for uh, not just being a young man, for being any man, and being able to put together a volume like this is very impressive, and the content is truly stellar. I'm really excited, really excited to see what the uh, greater world at large thinks of it when they get their hands on it as well. 
I am terrified. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate the honesty. (laughs) I can't wait till my parents get a copy of this. (laughs) (laughs) We thought this was a phase. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Well, uh, until we can chat on the 19th and announce all of this really exciting stuff, uh, you, the audience, go to MiltonRossism.com. Uh, check out a den anywhere online that you normally do and uh, tune into nine cents to get all the information uh, a den until we can chat again, my man. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. All right, people, that's going to do it for another show. And we truly hope you enjoyed it. Uh, a few you know, notes here about the show. I just had some massive audio issues. So if you're hearing that on your end, I try to filter out as much um, crazy audio distortion or echo as possible. I haven't had a whole lot of time to really hone in on what the problem is with my computer. So um, I I apologize for that. Will you forgive me? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we would love to hear from you. Visit the website, 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let us know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. We are out there in social networks, Satan at Facebook, Google Plus, Twitter, even fucking MySpace. So you can... Check out any of those places to get information on uh, weekly show notes, contests, uh, general thoughts, or glimpses into our lives. Download the show Mondays via the RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, and YouTube. Uh, if you're getting us through iTunes or Stitcher, give us a rating or comment. We really do appreciate it. And remember, if you want to learn a little bit more about Satanism the Church of Satan, churchofsatan.com is the only place that you should be going outside of of course, the Satanic Bible, the Satanic rituals and Satanic scriptures, etc. Oh yeah, one that's relevant to this episode, the Satanic Witch. Read it, people. Uh, and remember, the only way we're going to continue this is if you continue sharing, corresponding, and encouraging us. Help spread the word about Nine Cents, and thank you for your interaction. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, being joined by... Jesse. A very amazing Jesse. And until next week, Hail Satan! Hail Satan!